Well, good morning, Radiant. It's Pentecost Sunday, and it's the perfect Sunday to conclude our series, Ecclesia. Ecclesia is the word that's translated to church in the New Testament, used of the local gathered assembly, and it's the series that is preparing us to gather together again. Now, in our time apart, it's very easy in our excitement to be gathered again, to forget that sometimes church is messy, that there is an ugly side to church. So in preparation of gathering, I wanted to make sure we come back with our eyes wide open. And these past three messages uh, have been that. It, it, there's been a, a theme of, yeah, there is a messy side, but yet we are to love one another and to walk in love. You see, it's God who unites natural born enemies. And as we saw last week, we are called to keep or maintain the unity and reflect him by how we love one another. Now the problem is, Keeping peace and maintaining unity by loving one another is easier said than done. Sometimes we just don't feel like choosing love. Sometimes other people make it really difficult for us to choose love. It's in those moments where the charge to keep unity becomes a huge burden to us. It becomes about religious performance. And whenever you set up a system of religious performance, you create two camps. There's the winners and then there's the losers. The winners are those who do it better than most of us. And it actually leads to spiritual pride. And then there's the losers, the rest of us. And what we find is when you're in that category, you find yourself discouraged, even disengaged. See, the good news is that, that, that that's not what God intended when he called us to love one another. That's not what God intended when he called us together as the church. In fact, he's giving us help so that we can love one another. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. So far in this series, we've been in the book of Ephesians, chapters 2, 3, and 4. So you're likely very familiar if you've been with us with some of the background. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, a church he's very familiar with. He writes to instruct them what it, what it means to live in light of Christ's work on the cross. Now in chapter 2, we see that God brings unity, that Jews and Gentiles, natural-born enemies, are united with an unexpected love and unity. And then in chapter 3, we see that God intends for the church, a church united, to reveal his manifest wisdom. And then in chapter 4, as we read last week, God brings supernatural community by changing us into people who will love one another with humility, gentleness, patience, and graciousness. So read with me. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 15. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but live like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs amongst yourselves, and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God, the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So verses 15 through 17, we see Paul say, be wise. Christians are to be wise because the days are evil. They, they take care in how we live. This is why at the very end of this same letter, Paul says this when, he's, when he introduces the, the armor of God. He says, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And the world is in rebellion against God, and the world wants, us, wants to thwart the work of God in us. 
Be wise. And then in verse 18, be filled. Be filled with the Spirit. See, Ephesus was a, a center of pagan worship. The Ephesian culture worshipped a, a, a god called Bacchus. He was the god of wine and drunken orgies. They believed that in order to commune with their god, they had to be drunk. And that allowed them to determine how to serve and how to obey their god. Now, Paul contrasts the way that they commune with their God with how we commune with the God of heaven, how we live for him, how we can serve him and obey him, and how we determine his will. Unlike Bacchus, you don't have to be drunk with wine because drunk, being drunk will ruin your life. He says, be filled with the Spirit, the Spirit of God, and then you'll understand what the Lord wants you to do. And then in verses 19 through 21, we see Paul give examples of what being filled with the Spirit looks like. Addressing one another with Scripture, making music to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks or having an attitude of gratitude, submitting to one another, or having an attitude of mutual submission. These are things that show that the Spirit is guiding and directing one. These are not the roots of being filled in the Spirit, but it is the fruit of being filled in the Spirit. Paul further fleshes out what it means to be full of the Spirit in, in the, the, the next section of Ephesians when he says that here's what Spirit-guided relationships look like, husband and wife, child and parents, slaves and masters. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means being guided and directed by the Holy Spirit, as Paul illustrates in verses 19 through 21. But before we speak further about being full of the Holy Spirit, let's identify the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity, and we don't have time here to plumb the depths of Trinitarianism, but here's a quick overview. There is one God, God is three persons, and each person is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. Now I know if you've graduated from Church 101, you're thinking to yourself, Jerome, why is that necessary? We know who the Holy Spirit is. Well, here's why it's necessary, because somewhere, some, somehow, some way in our background, many of us kind of view the Holy Spirit as that weird uncle that we don't want to invite to the family gathering. Somehow, some way, we've made the Holy Spirit weird, which makes us feel awkward about it. Now, I realize that some of you have probably experienced some weird stuff or seen some weird stuff done by overzealous Christians in the name of the Spirit. Now, if that weirded you out, that's okay. It, it probably should. But let me challenge you not to let a handful of people or experiences distance you from the person or the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And what is that work? Well, the work of the Holy Spirit, according to one theologian, is this. It's the work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world, and especially in the church. To manifest the active presence of God. God's presence is manifested in the Old Testament by the glory of God, or theophanies. And in the Gospels, we see God's presence is manifested in the person of Jesus, God amongst his people, but in the church age, post-Jesus ascension, the age we live in today, the Holy Spirit is the primary manifestation of God's presence. In other words, it is primarily through the Holy Spirit that God works in the world today. The Holy Spirit empowers, He purifies, He reveals, and as, we, as we've seen in this series, He unifies. So what, what, what's significant about the day of Pentecost, the day that we celebrate today on this Sunday, is that the birth of the church is, is a new age where there's a transition that takes place from the old covenant where the Holy Spirit would come on people 
to allow them to perform specific tasks that were assigned by God to the new covenant where the Holy Spirit indwells believers. And that's good news for us. That's good news for us who are charged to keep the peace and maintain the unity that God brings. See, the same Spirit that brings unity to us helps keep unity amongst us because he dwells within us. Let me say that again. The same Spirit that brings unity to us helps keep unity amongst us because he dwells within us. See, the very moment you became a Christian, the Spirit took up residence in you. It's part of that spiritual resurrection that takes place. You are a new creation. Your real life is hidden in Christ and you are living a new life. While the degree to which the Spirit dwells in us does not change, what can change is the degree by which we recognize and respond to his presence. He is all there, all of the Spirit. But our recognition and our response to him, it does sway back and forth. It does vary. So in Ephesians 5.18, when Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, he's not telling them to be filled with the Spirit because they don't have the Spirit. They're already believers. The Spirit has already taken up residence in them. And in a similar passage, Jesus tells his disciples, again, those who are already believers, who already have the Spirit, to go into Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. So what does Paul mean when he says be filled with the Spirit? So if you look at the original language, verse 18, the grammar there shows a present tense imperative to be filled. Now it could, or maybe it should be translated, be continually being filled with the Spirit, but that's bad English, and we don't want to translate our Bibles to bad English, but that's the meaning, be continually being filled with the Spirit. That's what Paul wants. He wants them to live lives with the Spirit's power and present that's evident. He, he wants them not, he wants the Spirit not simply to be present, he wants their lives to be such that the Spirit is making his presence known by how they live their life because they're guided and directed by the Spirit. This results in feeling what God feels. This results in desiring what God desires, doing what God wants, speaking by the Spirit's power, praying and serving in God's strength, and knowing with the knowledge that God himself gives. As Christians, it's important that we depend on the Spirit's power. Remembering the words that God spoke to Zerubbabel, through the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 4.6. It's not by force nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of the heaven's armies. See, the same spirit that brings unity to us helps keep unity amongst us because he dwells within us. That right there removes the burden of religious performance. So what is it that we're to do? I mean, if that's true, that... The same spirit that brought unity is the spirit that helps us keep unity, that he's dwelling in us, and therefore he helps us maintain unity. It means this. Be filled with the spirit. See, every sermon in this series has had challenges like walk in love, choose to reflect Christ when it doesn't come naturally, abide in Christ. These things are difficult to do in your own strength. They're difficult to do if it's up to you, if it's religious burden, if it's performance. But thankfully, the Holy Spirit who dwells in you will help you do that. You know what? Ask God to fill you with his Spirit. It's not that you don't have the Spirit. See, the moment you believed, the Spirit came and took up residence in you. But God can cause you to grow and contain more of his Spirit, more of his fullness and power. 
See, depending on your background, you might have grown up using terms like having more of the spirit. Now, this can be problematic because it sets up uh, different classes of Christians. And the spirit dwells in you the moment you put your trust in him. But there's still room for God to pour out his spirit in a greater measure. Let me illustrate this. This balloon is full of air. It's full of air. And yet, in a similar way to this balloon, God can grow us and continue to pour out his spirit that his spirit's further seen and reflected in us. When I say, ask God to fill you with your spirit, I'm saying, God, would you expand me just like this balloon to reflect a greater measure of your spirit's work in me? The second thing I would say is take responsibility for the unity. Acts chapter 2, we, we read about the day of Pentecost. The church experienced an unprecedented unity amongst a diverse group of believers that were gathered there in Jerusalem that day. But then, just four chapters later, in Acts chapter 6, we see the first recorded instance of the ugly side of church. Just four chapters later. Let me read it to you. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God and not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. So here we have the Greek-speaking believers and the Hebrew-speaking believers. Now, these are both Jewish people, but it's just different cultures. So it's a, lot, it's a little bit like what we saw in Ephesians, the Jews and Gentiles, but here they're both Jews, just totally different culture and language. There is animosity between these two groups as well. And when the Greek-speaking believers felt like their widows were being neglected, they complained. I think we can learn a few lessons by how this was handled. First of all, Leadership gave attention to this problem. See, th this complaint wasn't just about inequality. This, this complaint threatened the unity of the church. A church that's only four chapters old. See, the apostles called a meeting of all the believers. At this point, all the believers of this church in Jerusalem are all the believers on the face of the planet. So everyone is involved here. They call a meeting of all the believers. They say, this is important to us. This is important in regards to unity, but it's not our job. It's ultimately not our responsibility. Help us stay focused on what we are meant to do. Really, the ultimate responsibility fell on the congregation. It's the congregation's responsibility to protect the unity. The solution came from the church. The congregation selected men who resolved the situation. 
Now, this congregation very likely was weighted very heavily in the favor of the Hebrew believers, the, the Hebrew-speaking believers. And yet, if you look at the names, scholars will say these names are Greek names. They're, they're, they selected men who were of the other side, the Greek-speaking believers. See, they bent over backwards to make sure unity happened. They took responsibility and said, we want to make this right, so much so that we're going to select the minority to serve in these roles. Churches get in trouble when the pastor and the congregation think that the pastor must solve every issue. These situations place the pastor in an impossible position of being the savior. And they rob the congregation of the opportunity to grow and glorify God by taking responsibility for keeping the unity. The good news for Radian is that I'm not good enough to pretend to be the savior and fix everything. That's God's job. And God works through you as you're full of his spirit. Reflect him and walk in love. Now, I understand this message has been directed at Christians. It's talking about how we should live in church together, how we should be God's church. But if you're not a Christian and you're listening to this message, I hope that you, you caught in this message that the call that we have as Christians is not to a religion, but to really a relationship. Being indwelled by the Spirit of God and reflecting Him because He dwells in us is not religion. It's absolutely a relationship. It's a relationship that's made available because Jesus has accomplished what we could never do. He has made us right with God. We are sinners from the moment we're born, separated from God. And the only thing that can make us right would be God's Son, fully man, fully God. God taking on flesh, who lives a life we could not live and dies a death that our sins deserve. And when he rose from the dead, we too can be raised to new life with him. The question is, how will you respond to that message of the gospel? That is the message of the gospel. That there is a new life in him because of what he has done. Will you cross the line of faith today? If you do, I'd ask you to let us know so we can come alongside you and help you in these early days of a new found faith. I'd like to close this message by reading a prayer, and this will be the closing prayer. It's a prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. It's a prayer that I've used before in a service, but I think as we close this series and think about how we walk through the halls of this church and how we interact with one another, it's a perfect prayer for our relationship with one another. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.